Okay, welcome everybody. This is another edition. And as always, I don't know what edition we're on. Something like 60 or 50 or 70 or I don't know. Of conversations with Dr. Cowan and friends. And as everybody I think knows, uh, some of the friends are friends that I've known for a long time. And others are people that I've met for, uh, this is actually the first meeting. And so this is an example of that. And today's guest is, uh, let me see, see if I get this right, How, Howdy McCuskey. Is that right? Yeah, solid. And as I told somebody, just to, uh, just to show you what a goofball I can be, I, I said, I'm going to try my best to not say howdy, howdy. Uh, because that would be a horrible, uh, stupid joke, and we don't want to go there quite yet. But I say that because, uh, Howdy, I don't know if you know this, but I, I don't give like this guy went to Duke or Stanford or has this. I say if something I know about you. Um, right. And so what I know is that you used to be a stand-up comic, which makes me extremely jealous because... Uh, if there's anything that I aspire to, it's to be a better comic, and you're probably a better comic than I. Uh, and the other thing, and so that's one thing I know about you. The other thing, more importantly, I think, well, you are also a hockey coach. I know mm -hmm. that. And I uh, spent pretty much my first, from five to 20, playing sports. That's like all I did and even got into sports uh, seriously later, even in life. So that's another thing that we share. But mostly, I have been really impressed with the books that I've read of yours, uh, especially this one on exposing the expositions, and then on falling for the truth. And there was one another one that I haven't quite made it through on Egyptian wisdom. And if there's anything that I think I can spot is when somebody is onto something. And that's the kind of people that I want to talk with. And so that's my introduction. So welcome to a conversation. And I would, if you could just give us a little bit about who you are, and then let's talk about these expos, I think sometimes called world fairs. And specifically, what are we talking about? When did they happen? And why should any of us care what happened at these expos from 1851 to 1915? I mean, what's the big deal? So if you could just tell us a little bit about your background, who are you, uh, what, you what, what you're doing this for, maybe, and then let's launch into the expos. And again, I'm Really honored to have you join me, and thank you very much for being part of this. Yeah, like I said, thanks for having me on. I've I've seen a number of your podcasts over the last few years. They've been very helpful, of course, myself in understanding the last three years of insanity we've been going through, and so it's great to be here. Um, great. Short short bio for everyone out there who doesn't know who I am. Um, yeah, I guess it was relatively normal-ish. You know, I was a hockey player most of my life, then became a stand-up comedian, but went through a lot of trauma in my early part of my life. My father was a 
was a psychopath, stole all he uh, stole all my money in my last year of university and kind of threw that out though, made it that very difficult to finish my degree. Just as I finished my degree, my girlfriend or ex-girlfriend at the time was murdered. And that caused a giant inner spiral that started to happen from her, from her murder. And I went into a pretty deep depression for a couple of years. And this was like 25 years ago. And in the course of that depression, I, I saw a television program come. It was actually at the point I was going to kill myself. I was ready to commit suicide. I just couldn't find a really clean way to do it that um, wasn't going to be messy for whoever was going to find me. And, and that's really the only reason I didn't at the time. That's, that's how unhappy I was. Wow. This program came on uh, on ancient Egypt pyramid building. And there was like an, an, an unbelievable explosion in my mind of that's what I'm supposed to do. Ancient Egypt has secrets and I'm supposed to figure out what they are. So I spent 10 years doing a ton of uh, research into the ancient civilizations. I was lucky enough to meet a, a Korean monk, several native medicine men, um, Qigong doctors in China. So along the way, I was doing tremendous personal study, personal work, digging into a lot of things and thinking I was knowing, thinking I was hadn't figured something out. I thought I was starting to get pretty smart. Yeah. And then after I put out the Egypt book around 2005, I fell in a canyon, had a death experience, realized what you might say the non-reality of reality, and then went through a good eight to 10 year period of trying to come to terms with that, trying to come to terms of how that, how the understanding of what happened in the death experience matched all the work I did with the, the people before, all the things that I did, all the uh, hard work I did before that, that kind of became falling for truth. Then in 2019, just before our stuff started here in, in, in um, February, I was down in Florence uh, studying cathedrals. I was looking at how they were built as energy machines, not as religious structures. And in the course of that, when I got home back here to Norway, I, I uh, bumped into the World's Fairs. And I bumped into the Chicago World's Fair. And we'll, we can go into the whole detail of how, how I went into that, but went through that for eight months, wrote that book, began that process. And in the process of sharing that, when I started my YouTube channel and, and all the interviews I've done on, on the World's Fair, I started moving more and more into Plato's cave, more and more into dealing with reality. And my newest book that just came out a few months ago was called uh, Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. Yes. So I've actually then taken it even, I feel, to... There's not many more steps I can go actually into trying to figure out the reality. Yeah. But for me, the, yeah, the, going into the fairs was a big part of it because I, I came out of university with a history degree. And while I had destroyed archaeology, you might say, in my, in my Egyptian books, I still kind of thought history, more recent yeah. historical events were mostly true. And yeah, then I saw the, then I saw the, the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, and it just... When I saw that they had 700 acres built in record time of two years and then pretty much blew it up and destroy it and did this again and again and again all over the world, the same template, um, I said, yeah, there's some people doing YouTube videos on this. There's things going on, but it needs, a, it needs an in-depth look. This is so bizarre. There's something important here. And that's why I took the eight, eight months or so to write the book. I could have kept writing it for three more years, but I think I got enough of an overview of how strange these things were to hopefully get people interested in looking at all of history, not just this period. So there's the overview. And you can see let me, you let me stop first. you there. Cause we, uh, Howdy and I also agreed this was, would be most fun as a conversation. And 
And so even mm-hmm. though I, the, really the point is the expos, I want to throw something out at you and see what you think about this, because I also had a, uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, I would call him a, a psychologically very disturbed father. You know, he was diagnosed right. as a schizophrenic and all that. And this, uh, I think a lot of who I am in some ways, you know, was, was shaped by that and what I saw as, as a child. So that might be similar, but something changed in me. Interestingly, when I, and this got changed, believe it or not, when I saw a, a, a interview, I think with Mr. Rogers, right? you know, yeah. Mr. Rogers, yeah. and he was, ta- he was talking to somebody, a, a reporter, I think, I don't know if you've ever seen this. And the reporter was complaining about his father, like he was a psychopath and a cruel, right. cruel son of a gun. And, and he didn't want to go see him as he was dying. And Mr. Rogers looked at him and said, and he so admired this reporter because he was, he was skeptical of everything and was able to uncover the truth because mm. of his distrust of authority. And he mm. said, do you think it's possible, you know, and so Mr. Rogers always like wants to put a positive spin on things. Do you think it's possible that this quest in your life, which has been so meaningful to you and so helpful to the world actually was a gift from your father who's supposed to be the authority. And if you saw, if he was a good authority, right. You know, like somebody who you could trust, you wouldn't have, decided that anybody in authority has got to be suspect and you wouldn't have embarked on this path. And I remember hearing that and thinking, wow. Yeah, it's well, and there's many layers to that. One is, of course, if you're having a happy dream, you're not interested in waking up. You only want to start waking up when things become a nightmare. So that's step one. So usually trauma and tragedy is a key step in anyone wanting to go beyond the stand. If everything's wonderful, you have no need to dig into anything. You have no need to dig into what's true or false. Things are fine. Yeah. So that's, that's part of it is using, is, is having somehow the luck to use the trauma. And then in my case, it was having, yeah, this, this constant interaction of a, cause my, my father was a, was a professional con man. So I was able to watch someone who was a, basically a professional liar all the time. And that, as you start pulling that into your life, then, and you start seeing, wait a minute, everybody out there who is particularly telling me anything of importance, they're lying. You can just, yeah. you can see, even yeah. if they think they're being on that's And that's the other thing. Somebody can be lying, but they're to themselves. They're being truthful. They're being very honest themselves, but you can still catch in certain nuances that, but it's still not coming at a subconscious level. It's not coming out clean. They even, they don't really believe it, even though they feel they do. So you can, that I think also helped me begin tearing apart this, this crazy reality we've, we've been living our whole life. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it becomes a real gift and it's so profound because in both of our cases, this is our father we're talking about. And if he can't be quote, honest with your son, you know, then this is a real con man, right? Because he's a, he's good at it. Yeah. The other thing I, that from what you just said, and one of the things that's so, 
I read Exit the Cave, and I also did a, a webinar on, on Plato's Cave uh, as a story about COVID in a way, too. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a story about everything. And by no, and I, I've read that your Exit the Cave, and I, I really want to encourage every everybody listening to read it. It is, it's just uh, <laughs> wonderful. Thanks. And the reason is, you, you don't often meet, and I would even put myself in this category, my, my history is much more thinking about things than it is experiencing things. And there's something that re really rings true when, when we hear from you. These are, in many cases, things you've experienced, not just like, I think about stuff all the time, you know, and that has its obvious limitations but you've lived through a lot of these i think that's the gift i i i, I at least yeah. I feel it's a gift that right right from the early stages um the native medicine men were very clear on doesn't matter what you think you know it's what can you what can you share as an experience yeah. and so they were constantly shaping experiences and tests and um uh, before we get into the fairs, I can just give one for everybody, which is is one that's always stands out in my mind. Is because one medicine man I was told to meet for the first time, and someone who would be thought someone said, "Well, this this is a guy who'd be helpful." So I went to the reserve, went to his house, knocked on his door. He let me in, kind of said, "Like, who are you?" You know, I said, "Well, this person who, who knows you said well, I should come, and and there might be some something for me to learn from you." He said, "Okay, sit down." So I sat on his couch, and then he ignored me for like eight hours. He didn't give me a drink. He didn't ask if I wanted anything to eat. I mean, he literally just did his day as if I didn't exist. Yeah. And I went through this struggle for a while. Like, am I supposed to say anything? Am I supposed to do anything? Should I, you know, and I finally just said, I'm just going to wait. He knows I'm here. You know, yeah. so I'm just going to, I'll sit here however long it takes. And it was eight or 10 hours. And he finally said, okay, come back tomorrow at eight o'clock. Yeah. So he was testing to see, would I just sit there and wait? Would yeah. I be patient enough to wait? And all of these, it, it, all of these little things in the course of my life, and of course the bigger ones, somehow fit into then the actual research itself, where I can put in. I know I wasn't at a World's Fair in, in the 1880s. I wasn't at a World's Fair in the 1890s. But I can take my own experiences, place them into the research, and and kind of figure out what questions to ask, what ways to go to help unlock. I hope unlock pieces of, as you say, finding false. We yeah. can't go looking for truth. All we can do is, is look at what's presented to us and see, does that, can we verify that is true? And if we can't, we can easily find the false and tear it apart. Once we find, once we tear away the, the false, everything is open at that point. The challenge is, you know, I can't say, I know what happened at the World's Fairs for sure. I know who built them. I know why they built them. I know for sure what they did, but I can certainly take down a part and say, here's what history says happened at these things. And I can show completely why that's not true. Yeah. And and I think that another way to say what you just said was, uh, and why I appreciate what you're doing so much is you've learned the difference between knowing and believing. Uh, because uh, or experience and believing most of us go through life believing stuff and like i found with viruses you can ask you know the top medical doctor why do you uh, how do you know and they don't have a clue they don't know how anybody would know whether there is or there isn't but anyways so let's get into what do we know about these expos or what do we don't know what look 
give us uh, an overview of what's going on here. So we've got two avenues that we can discuss. There's the avenue that most everyone looks at, which to me is actually the smallest part of the story. And that is the buildings themselves. The, con- yeah. the How are these buildings constructed? How is it possible in the time frame? What's supposed to be there? And how could they be so ornate, so beautiful, so spectacular, and then be destroyed? So we have the one side of it, which is the buildings, which like I say, that gets the most of the attention. To me, it's the other side of it that it should get more attention. And that is, but what was actually going on at these fairs? Yeah. What what were the exhibits? What were the things? What was being presented? Because to me now, I see these fairs as like indoctrination centers. Yeah, right. That they were literally indoctrinating a complete concept, a complete idea, complete structure of thinking before movies, before television, before that. This was it. And you just you put these all over the world, and lo and behold you can tell you can you can get a story into people's minds and i think that's what they were doing because as you dig into what was actually shown at these things it's beyond bizarre it's like it's like on one level it's sick and on another level it's like it's showing our whole world for the next 120 140 years it was where we are now was built actually at these fairs and scary enough i use the word reset in my book before any of this started That to me, these fairs were literally like like portals from the end of the last world. However, that last world ended looks like destruction, and this was the this was resetting in a new idea. And then all of a sudden, here we are with all of these controllers of the world throwing out the word "great reset" again. Yeah. And uh, now I see that hey, these fairs are like an important marker to where we are now, to telling us what we're what we're maybe going through and what we're headed for. Uh, so that's why to me. It's so important to study them, not just asking the questions of how did these buildings get built? Was there a civilization prior to this? Um, Was there a technology we didn't have? That's question one we can talk about. But the other one, the bigger one is, well, what was really going on there? Right. So I and we don't uh, you know, I want to I commit to people to keep this to an hour. So this may end up being part one. I, I actually hope it is. But. Let's start anyways, just an, maybe an overview of the structure. And maybe, it, I don't know if we can just go for 15 minutes and then an overview of, of this other fascinating part, which I know very little about what was actually happening there. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's so, possible or that's maybe not the best strategy. Oh, we just, we just, we're just playing along here. And, and yeah. it's, it's the idea is having people who's listening, who don't know about this subject, um, potentially get interested in it and want to look into it. So if you're sitting there watching this now, you might want to open up your browser, just type in Columbia Exposition, 1893, St. Louis Fair, 1904. It doesn't matter. Just throw something in and put some images up on your computer screen um, because that will, you know, it it makes it, it helps to see. So we take one of these fairs and and like I say, it doesn't matter. They had them in Philadelphia, Buffalo. Omaha, Nashville, uh, St. Louis, San Francisco, you go around the world, Paris, Milan, uh, Brussels, the Philippines, they're in Rio, they're all over the world. And the structures are every built continent, with, basically, 
every continent, everywhere in the world. Yeah. And the things, not only is the size, is the scale, like we're talking Chicago, 700 acres, St. Louis was a thousand acres, but most of them were, were just, yeah, at least 500 acres of buildings, supposedly all brand new built and absolutely spectacular. Like there's the one on the front of my book, which is just one building, one dome, actually a very small building from the Columbian Exposition. Uh, there was a building there known as the manufacturer's building, which you could have put 300,000 people in. So you could put three Rose Bowls worth of people into this one building at the Columbian Exposition. Columbia so have, was first where? Of all, that's the Chicago. Chicago, yeah. So in each, so yeah, so each, it just a, it's a, it's a good one because it has so many pieces and details to to discuss. Uh, but you, like I said, you can do it to anyone. It doesn't matter. Go to Buffalo, go to Nashville, go to St. Louis, go to San Francisco. They're all just insane. So for me, it was the, it was the scale of the building. It was the beautiful domes. It was the beautiful towers. It was the it was the ornate construction. And I, I, I now there, there's two stories. Is the the story of how this was done. This is the historical thing. How could they do this in two years, right? How could you build 700 acres in two years? The standard story we're given is that they had this new material called staff, which is a type of plaster. And they put up a lot of wood bracing with plaster facades and that's and then and then painted them. And that's how you were able to get this, like building a giant movie set. That's the best way to describe it. That's that's how it's presented. But you've got things like the Buffalo Electric Tower, which is 325 feet high, which had uh, elevators that ran to the top where people could go to the top of the electric tower and see over top of Buffalo, for example. Are you going to build that out of wood and plaster? Yeah. Like, you know, and have like elites who are coming here spending massive amounts of money die in a collapse. I mean, this is again and again and again. You can see so many buildings like at these fairs that have rooftop mezzanines where people would go up and look over the fair. They're obviously not built like that. They're obviously built to last. So I knew right away that we have this, we have this problem of, first of all, the buildings themselves. So before we get into what the buildings might be, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to write a book yet. And I went to some building contractors that I know here, some people that I know who build large events and, and, and they don't just build a house, like they build massive projects. And I showed them the pictures of the Columbian Exposition, for example, in St. Louis. And they just, and at first they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, and I explained to them what it was. And they, they were, of course, were stunned looking at it. And I said, okay, let's be honest. Could, if I gave you an unlimited budget and unlimited timeline, could you build this for me today? Like, could you build the Columbian Exposition right now today? And he goes, with modern machines and everything. Yeah, you got unlimited number of guys, unlimited budget. He goes, yeah, I can build that for you. Okay, how long is that going to take? He said, well, it's going to take me two years for the planning because you've got a lot of details here. You've got, to, you've got canals and you've got moats and you've got all sorts of, of water transplants and lakes. And then, so we, it's two years to plan it. Then we're going to do two years to do the landscaping because we're going to have to dig all this out. We're going to have, and I'm saying with modern machines, yeah, modern machines. Two years, we'll dig it all out. We'll put the roads in. We'll put like the Chicago Exposition had a, an above ground electric train. You know, 1893 above ground electric train. They had like they had, they had a motorized uh, walkway where it actually moved on its own. You didn't have to walk, right? So, so all this stuff is put in, and then right. he says, "Okay, and then give me about 12 years, and we'll get the buildings done." So I said, "About 15 years." Yeah, 15 years. Even out of like today. marble or stone or granite or whatever they 
actually looked like they were made out of. Yeah, he, he said whatever, whatever, how it looked, he said, I can give me 15, give me 15 to 15 or 17 years. I'll get with unlimited budget, right? Unlimited guys. He said, I'll get it done. So I asked him the next question. So how did they do this in 1891 in two years? He said, not possible. That was his only answer, not possible. And when he thought, when he thought about it more, he said, you know what? This is as good a question as how the pyramids were built. Because, you know, he said, I, I deal with this stuff every day of my life. Yeah. And he just said, this is not possible. Yeah. So that, that's where we start. That's the starting point for all of this is the, where did this stuff come from? Yeah. And so we're talking literally about hundreds of sites and thousands of buildings and structures and canals and walkways and elevators mm -hmm. and and you know copper plated this and and gold that and all, all these things there is simply no way they could have been built in the time with the technology that they were that were told they were that's the standard the standard answer we're always given okay it's built with this cheap it's built cheaply out of really cheap material and oh uh, either old world craftsmanship that's another another answer old world craftsmanship they knew how to build back then right but well if they know how to build back then it should take longer not shorter because if you're going to do extremely good work that takes longer not shorter yeah. periods of time the other one is oh well they, they could just use they could just use a uh, hundred thousand guys then and it doesn't matter if they killed them or whatever the, the things were different back then they didn't have rules and regulations and that's another answer they're given so I, again i showed some other photographs to this building contractor of the of the St. Louis Exposition of 1904, simply because that one has some of the best construction supposed construction photos. They all have construction photos, but they're very um, they're very questionable. They're usually uh, a smaller structure being built with wood and plaster. I, I don't doubt many of the buildings at this at these things were honestly built just the way they said they were. I mean. Yeah. The midways and some of these areas, I mean, they needed, you can, and you can see those photographs, you can see they look like simple buildings. But when yeah. you get to these giant, massive structures, when you're looking at these buildings, these are not just thrown together immediately. So, but that's usually one of the answers that, oh, so I showed him the construction photos from St. Louis. And what you normally get there is you get like this giant mud plain with no roads, no nothing. And then you have the building basically complete and a bunch of scaffolding on the side of it. Um, you know, like they're in like painting mode or something. And I showed it to my uh, the, the, and this the building you're talking said, about. It's like it's like looking at the Parthenon or. Or, or, you know, the U.S. Capitol building or something like that. Right. And and there's a, there's a, actually things like this, the U.S. Capitol building and state Capitol building. That's another one we can talk about yeah. because, again, you can't explain any of those either. But, yeah, that's right. what we're talking about. When you're talking about 20 or 30 of them all in one place. Um, so you've got your scaffolding on the sides of these buildings. And he looked at the photo and he said, I don't know what this is, but... Uh, if you've got like 20 or 30,000 guys that you need to build this, where's the coffee cup on the ground? Where's the, where's the hamburger wrapper? Where's the bathrooms for these guys to go? Where's the proximity to the work site of just to build this scaffolding, the amount of yeah. wood you're going to need like right next to where you're putting this up is going to be massive. And he's looking and these are quite high uh, photographs of like the area around it. And there's just, there's nothing. 
And his, his response was, I've been on building sites my whole life. Nobody has been at this place for a year. Wow. So again, we're back to this. So I began moving then when it comes to the building question of this. Um, you've got, before I get to the answer, you've got, you've got another strange issue that I found very quickly in the examination. Another reason I wrote the book is there's a, per, there, each of these fairs, the year after they were done, a, a famous historian of the day wrote a, wrote a book about the fair. Usually these books are five or 6,000 pages long. They are gigantic and they list every single detail of every single building of every single exhibit and a giant history, not just of the fair, but of the world. And these things are very strange to start with the history they're trying to present of the world, the history of how the fair was built. And then of course they go into explaining it. So I began looking into then the supposed story of the building of these things and and once you dig into who the architects are supposed to be, what the building story is, what, like like Chicago, for example, is built on Jackson Park. Jackson Park is a swamp. So the supposed thing they had to do for Jackson Park was first get a whole bunch of wood pilings and drive them into the swamp. And they're going to put these buildings that are like, yeah, big enough for 300,000 people to be in. They're going to put them on wood pilings to hold them over top of a swamp and then build on top of that. And, and, and of course, this is no problem for them to do. So the more you begin digging into this, you start asking. Without, without I was power tools. Without power tools, without any kind of machinery, nothing. Yeah. Um, it started to indicate quite quick, no electricity either. No, no electricity. electricity. Um, so we're dealing with questions of either A, they had a technology that they're not supposed to have. And, and one possibility is almost like 3D building, like 3D kits that they could literally just, but literally print out somehow. That's one theory. And the other theory that I guess is one that in the book I lean to the most, I think it's because it's the most, was the most hopeful or the most historically interesting to me was the idea that these buildings are actually from an ancient civilization, that, that the civilization we call Greece and Rome are not just civilizations that were only in Italy or only in Greece, that it was a worldwide civilization. And that's why the buildings look the same. That's why the structures yeah. are the same. And, and so the United States just happened to have a completely destroyed civilization somehow in the 17, 1800s. And when it was retaken, you know, when the, when the Freemasonry was found and the, everything was found dead, right found dead um yeah. we had just a whole bunch of these these huge buildings left and no explanation of where they came from so they had to either destroy a lot of them or play a story as to how the buildings were made in in, in the time frame that they were made in. because one thing about every one of these fairs one building survives this is also very weird. They remember they they blow up these fairs. They bring in St. Louis. They brought in dynamite. The day the fair ended, they brought in dynamite crews from Chicago and blew it up. They just you know they, think of the think of that. They just a thousand acres and they blew it up and threw it into landfills. So and these were you, massive this, like steel and glass and crystal palaces yeah. and domes and. Right. 
right. concrete. But one building always survives. It's always usually it's an art palace at the time. It needed special fire protection. And now, of course, it's still it's always still around. It'll be a historical museum. It'll be an art gallery. And yeah, it's all marble. It's all granite. It's all wow. perfect. And it's like, oh, no, this was the, it was just this building. We did the other buildings. No, no, no. I know they look the same, but that's just the great job we did with the way we painted and the way. No. Yeah. But so when if you look a little more closely at these, like, for example, if you look at the ones of the Buffalo Fair and the San Francisco Fair, these are two uh, dangerous fairs for the story because on many of the buildings you see weathering. And in fact, you see evidence of long-term weathering on the buildings that is impossible for something that should only have been up for six months. These show like 20, 30, 40 years of weathering. So we have, when it comes to the building part of the World's Fairs, you have a massive amount of questions that just do not fit the story. There's not, there, there, is no, there is no way, I know, and, and certain people are trying hard to, to make the story correct, but like I say, I've talked to a lot of people with a lot of building experience and, you know, I had a roadway outside my house where I lived before I lived here. They were working on that for six months to yeah. just get like a small stretch of road fixed, redug and fixed up. And you're telling me they built the St. Louis exposition in two years. And in fact, in St. Louis, they recourse the river. This is another one. They, they supposedly they stopped the way the river was going, changed the like dug out by hand with shovels, dug out and moved the entire river so that they could build the exposition where they wanted to build it. Yeah, what people? I I just I can't believe with, with anyone no backhoe. believed this for so long. Yeah, it's right. just it's amazing to me. Yeah, and and by the way, so um to for people to go and see these pictures where would you you you've done uh youtube videos and there's uh, there's other places right they can yeah actually i would see. just like um like if i don't know if you could or maybe you it's easier for you you've got we got the screen share you could just just click on your on your screen like just go columbian exposition 1893 and show the the google photo page you know that's all you'd have to do and just uh you know, show them just so because it is important that people see the photos that we're talking about. Columbian Exposition. Yeah, it should come up. There it is, 1893. And you'll get a image page. And like just go to the top where it says images. Or oh, there you go. And you can see some of these buildings at the Chicago Exposition. Wow, like it look is, at that. Like it's, it's, it's stunning, spectacular. Um, this Ferris wheel, by the way, that's the first Ferris wheel in the world. Each one of those cars held 50 people, just to give you the size, not wow. two, 50 people each. Think of, again, think of the, the monumental structure. And here, when you look at yeah, the one you're clicking on now, you're seeing this is supposed to be the goddess Columbia. This is supposed to be a, this is supposed to be a fair monumenting the, the uh, Columbus journey to the Americas, but Columbia is a famed goddess of the Americas, and there is there is the goddess Columbia, in of course perfect Roman toga as as they're supposed to be, and and this is the theory. It, it, they say it's gold, completely gold, not just gold plated. It was gold. Yeah. And these buildings, course, they they tell us are made of wood and plaster. They say wood and plaster, right? They would say this is staff. This is uh, the same as like you, this, yeah, same as you'd find on a, a movie set, like this, right? Um, you might find the manufacturer's building down there somewhere. Um, 
but but I mean, and and you, and these are this is just the main area of the of the Chicago Exposition. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Go see see the map that's there. Yeah. Click on the map. So just so we can get to you, you can get a, a shot of the size. Of, look at that building here. That is the manufacturer's building. Um, and again, that I can't remember if it's four or five football fields long. That's one wow. building. So you've got not only that, the size and the, and the amazing buildings. You've got look at the waterways. Look at the look yeah. at the amount of lakes and canals that are running. And you see how far this goes back in the distance. Off to your yeah. off to your uh, right first is the uh, was the, all of the uh, uh, city. Uh, every or every country in the world had their own exhibit, and then beside that, every state in the United States had its own um, building. And as you go further down beyond that, that's the midway where you see the the Ferris wheel, and that's where all the the rides and the various historical exhibits and everything else is going on. And if you go just to the left of that, exactly where your cursor is, right there, yeah, that's the University of Chicago, and that was amazingly also being built at the exact same time because you know you don't have a problem building this and a university at the same time a university right. of course which is built in complete gothic style complete looks like it's right out of you know downtown budapest or something and it, it just it's it, again it's when you see the scale that's when how it starts to get mind-boggling like yeah. how do you do this from nothing on a swamp in two years time right and even just this i don't know how big this building is but that's just yeah, I I can tell you because I've got it in my book, of course. And uh, if I give you, the, I can give you the exact. Sorry, I just have to get the exact uh, numbers for you. So we have so that particular building you were looking at, the manufacturer's building, is sixteen hundred and fifty feet long. Sorry, six football fields and uh, covered thirty acres. It's uh, wow. it was two hundred feet high, which is half the height of the Great Pyramid. Um. Eight, there were eight domes on each side of 80, 80 foot high entranceways. So those entranceways are 80 feet high. Um, there, yeah, there were four entrances, 10 feet wide, 80 feet high on top of each, which had an 18 foot tall eagle. Outside of the building, now get this, there were 10,000 electric lights. Those lights just on that building are more than were all of, all of New York City at that time, just on that one building. Wow. So also, where are you generating that yeah, kind of where's electricity? Where's the power for that electricity? Where's the power source? Right. Where is the power source? And and they they're so this, telling so, us so this begins so, so this takes me to the next level of all this, which leads me back to where I was working with the uh, cathedrals, and that is the buildings themselves are energy structures. The buildings themselves are generating and working with energy. And yeah. I began to understood what the cathedrals are doing. I could start to understand that the building. If you go down, yeah, that's exactly where you were. That's that that's the manufacturer's building right there. Yeah, and you can see that's a golden statue. That's I mean. Just this, just to build what you see in front of you in two years to me is a massive achievement yeah. for 1891. Just right. this. For and 2022. Yeah. I don't I, I don't see how they could build this now in two years. No. On a swamp. That's, again, it's yeah. Is it, it, it's again the more and, and when you realize if you think, oh, they it's just once. They did this again and again. You know, yeah. we pump in Omaha, we pump in Nashville, we pump in Philadelphia, we pump in New York, we pump in, and then they had smaller ones, right? As you saw in the book and you talked about in your last video that you had on this, where you were showing like some pictures I'd shown of like the Louisville Fair, the New Orleans Fair. They, they didn't have anything to this size, but it's still massive. Like I yeah. think the one in Louisville that they built was like 
four or five city blocks long. Is is there some way we can show pictures of that too, like Louisville World's Fair or something? I think if you pump in, uh, find the photo, I think it's Louisville Exposition. Try Louisville Exhibition or something like that. Louisville Exhibition, the year is 1883. So that's the year you're looking for. And see what comes up. Uh, somewhere there should be if you just go to images we should get something will will show up in the images i would think because you'll have to yeah there we go there you go so that's that that was it yeah that was, you know, the, if you, that, there's the one on the right, that one right there. It says Louisville, Kentucky, Southern Exposure, something like that. Yeah. So this was this is the one that was built for Louisville, Kentucky for its personal uh, exposition of 1883. Not a World's Fair, but its own little small yeah. one. I mean, that's bigger than any Medici Palace in Florence. Wow. Without question. It, it's huge. And so who's building this? Why are you building it? And then why wouldn't you turn it? Because they didn't turn it into apartments. They they destroyed it. And they actually built a movie theater out of the stuff they destroyed it with. Like, why, why would you not at least keep that? It's beautiful. It's spectacular. Yeah, right. We don't need anything like this, right? No, no. So it's obviously telling me that part of whatever's going on, because they're destroying this, as soon as they're done, it was telling me that there's a reason they're doing that. They're hiding evidence. They, they need to, they don't want people seeing stuff and asking questions. And so that becomes a whole nother avenue of exploration. Why? Why don't they want people seeing things like that? Because it's, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. And as I learned, it's energetically strong. I, I don't doubt that some of the cathedrals I've been in, in, in Europe, in my journey, I mean, I've been in pyramids, I've been in temples all over the world there. Uh, but in some of the cathedrals, the energy is so powerful and strong. I'm sure that if somebody, if, when, if, when they were functioning properly, if you were sick, all you would have to do is go in there, sit down, wait, wait 30 minutes and you'd be fine. Yeah. I don't think you would have had to do anything else than just be in the way, the, the, the strength and the harmonizing of these, uh, these energies. And I think what, because what they did is they placed these rose windows on the cathedrals, right? Those those rose windows are cymatic wave patterns. So if you when when you bring the energy in from the dome or the tower, work it around it for a while. Use the organ, organ right again the organ, right. to make the right sound to project the energy through the rose windows to get the exact frequency you want. You literally could be producing a harmonious frequency to your whole community just from that one building. I really wonder how ill people got at all with stuff like that around. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the ways I got into this as I started, quote, debunking the that, we, you know, we don't have cells and we don't have ribosomes and we, we don't even have biomolecules when you really get into it. It's we're just uh, electromagnetic whatevers. I don't even know what the word is. That changes everything about medicine. Yeah. Because then that this is this is what healing and harmony and wholeness all is about and all this messing with chemicals is is just nonsense but let's let's yeah. hold that for another time and because we only have like 10 minutes to go here just give us a hint we'll, we'll, we'll see how you're handling it you know if we need to go 10 or 15 or something to fit in whatever yeah. topic you want to go we'll we'll do it 
we'll yeah. fit in whatever we need to chat here. But let's because we can we can also come back. It's fascinating. I mean, it it really sends shivers up 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 your. We just realize the enormity of what we're talking about. But if you could just give us a hint of what you talked about earlier, what was actually what was the message? What was going on in these places? And I know so it's, here's you know, yeah. So here's the other side. So now when you actually start digging doing the research and for anyone interested there is a website out there it's called studylove.org it's very hard to find is world fair part of the site you actually have to i think it's slash world fairs i have it listed somewhere but he lists for every world fair every internet resource available to it, including almost all the books that were written on these fairs are available on the internet and every fair had a number of travel guides like the same way we have a lonely planet. If we go to Rome, yeah. there was like a Rand McNally and, a, and whatever for all of these expositions in like every restaurant, every exhibit. So you can actually go and see the detail of these things. Now, when you start going beyond the, okay, they've got restaurants and they've got this, we've got two very strange areas that these fairs are dealing with. The main area that's normally looked at is the technology. They're pushing a sort of technological advancement. They're pushing a cultural type of advancement of look at the countries of the world and the areas of the world and the painting and the artwork and the sculpture and the kinds of uh, textiles. And okay, so we have all of that. But now we've got two really interesting areas that were found on the Midway. And that was one, this idea of showing that evolution is correct, that i.e. they had human zoos. They brought prim what they're calling primitives from all over the world, set them up in, in a type of zoo where you could go watch Zulus, you could watch Sioux, you could watch Navajo, you could watch Aboriginals. And the stuff they like in Buffalo, they made the average, the Indian uh, contingents there go into the Coliseum, kill a bunch of dogs, and then eat them wow. for 10,000 people watching it. And the whole idea of this was to show that you as a fair goer, look at how evolved you are compared yeah. to these primitives that are around you. Starting, I think, in, the, in one of the fairs, maybe it might have been Omaha or Nashville, the Smithsonian started going and setting up a, a booth. And in the booth, sorry, you could, you could there were skulls. And they had skulls set up of like, this is some, a skull from Africa. This is a skull from here. This is a criminal. This, and here's the Victorian skull, your perfect skull from England. Now they had calipers and they would measure your head. And then they would show your head compared to all the skulls to show how far you were on the evolutionary track. Were you officially a, so that's, so we've got one thing going on, which is an extreme set of evolution slash racism. I'm going to read you exactly from my book, what, what was in Buffalo. This is one of the many other exhibits. This one was called the, um, I want to get the name of it right. I think it was called the Old Plantation. It was meant to show, of course, how wonderful it was to be a slave on the, on the, on the plantations of old. And this is what the Buffalo Evening News uh, newspaper said about the exhibit. Genuine Southern darkies, 200 of them, ranging in years from wee toddling pickaninnies to Negroes, gray and bent with age, can be seen each day at the exposition at their different occupations and pastimes. Lovers of Negro melodies will have a feast. Many of the darkies will be selected because of their special talents as singers and banjo players, and they will dance and sing to the seductive tinkling of instruments, exactly as the Negroes of the South used to do in the long, long ago. <laughs> so 
this is one section of what's going on at these expositions that here's all the technology. Look how advanced we are. Look at where we came from. They're basically building the theory of evolution as a fact at these fairs through not just a book, through your living experience of it. Yeah. That's, that's a key. The, the expositions are creating a living experience. And I think our history was built at the world's fairs. I think whatever our history was is completely different. And what we know of as history started at these fairs. I'll give you an example of St. Louis. And again, they're all the same. I'm just giving you an example. So going in my book again. Um, so all of these places has, has a type of midway. And on the midway, they have a huge historical exhibits. At these historical exhibits, particularly the one at St. Louis, they were not just a museum that you walk through, they're interactive experiences with thousands of actors playing the roles of the time period in which they are, which they are in. I'm just going to read you now some of these to give people out there an idea of, so you think of Disneyland as an experience, how would you like to have gone to see this? And this is just the midway. This is just the historical exhibits on the midway. Ancient Rome was a colossal exhibit with over 400 actors employed to give the visitor the illusion of going back in time to the life of gladiators. A large arena called the Hippodrome showcased chariot races, jousting, boxing, and gladiatorial clashes with 200 persons, 40 animals, including tigers, lions, and leopards. The finale was a reproduction of Nero's Rome burning. The Tyrolean Alps was a nine-acre reproduction of the Alpine region of Bavaria, Germany. It had 21 cottages, a cathedral, and gigantic mountains of staff. Visitors could ride a simulated tram car through the Alps where real cattle and goats would be in pasture. Dancers and musicians entertained the crowd. Jerusalem covered 11 streets and included or 11 acres and included 22 streets, 300, 300 buildings. Replicated were a stable in which Jesus was said to be born, the Golden Gate, the Mosque of Omar, and more. Over 1,000 people from Jerusalem traveled to the United States to participate and work in the exhibit. Uh, like at Chicago, one could walk down the streets of Cairo and smoke a water pipe, ride a camel, haggle for carpets, or walk through a replica of Luxor's temple. At the streets of Seville, you could see a replica of the Plaza de Torres in Madrid and the Gypsy Lane of Barcelona. The Great Siberian was a train ride that utilized illusion to make one believe they were on a great cross-country cross Russian railway. The Irish village was entering a replica of St. Lawrence's Gate. Paris replicated France during medieval times. There was Constantinople, the Chinese village, and the streets of St. Louis. That's just some of it. <laughs> Think of the scale just of that. And what's so interesting is, again, in the time before movies and everything else, if you go to a gladiatorial clash and you're talking to the actors afterwards, you're you, you would you would think you've just been to ancient Rome. Not that you've learned, about, you've been there, you've experienced it. And of course, all the school teachers would have gone to this. They immediately teach their classes because it's from the Smithsonian. It's at the World's Fair. It has to be right. And within a generation, everyone believes the story. It's, so, it's amazing when you think of it as an indoctrination propaganda tool, which I think is a big part of what the fairs were doing. So there's two aspects of that. First of all, when you read that and you think, how in the heck did they make these things in 1893? You know, <laughs> like a hippodome and where did they get the tigers and lions and how were they imported? <laughs> yeah. and, and this, the 
people from Jerusalem and making a 12 acre park that goes through the simulated. That's 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 the street of the pike in St. Louis, where all of these things were off shot from. Just you can see the scale of it. Yeah. Where do you get it all from? Yeah. Where do you how do you and how do you make this in two years and who's putting up the money and where did the shovels come from and all this? Oh, that's another important question we haven't got into, and that's the money aspect of it. Yeah. Because every one of the fairs lost a lot of money. Like the, the Philadelphia Fair lost $4 million, which is a massive amount for 1876. Yeah. One thing we know about rich elite people, one of the reasons they stay rich and elite is they don't lose money. They don't yeah. waste it. So if you would have done one of these things and you just lost like the equivalent of $400 million today, that would stop. In this case, they said, let's do more. We yeah. want more of this. So they were constantly putting these on the, you know, the big robber barons, the big, the, the huge bankers like JP Morgan and, and the Carnegie Steel. These are the guys behind building all this in the US. And they kept thinking losing millions and millions of dollars a year to put this on is a good idea. So that's telling you also right away something pretty nasty is going on with these things. Yeah. And then this all this talk about simulations and and you know, I mean, we're talking 1890s and 1870s, like one wouldn't think they'd have simulators then. Like that's something that I don't, you know. (laughs) So that's the one side. The other side is they they were literally creating history. I think so. Yeah. So Because we were also dealing with two weird things that are going on historically at the same period of time. We're told the Civil War has just ended in the United States. We're dealing with nationwide city fires, like every single city in the United States is burned to the ground over the course of 50 years. I don't think that the time frame is right. And then magically rebuilt. We've got orphan trains running all across the U.S. where tens of thousands of these orphans, which no one can explain where they came from, are just being put on trains and shipped all over. And at the same time, the building of massive insane asylums. Like, again, things that are as big as the Medici Palace are going all all over the world at this time. Well, where are all these insane people coming from? Why all of a sudden do you need a bunch of insane people at the exact same period the fairs are going on? None of this stuff is separate. The city fair, the city fires, the insane asylums, the orphan trains, the world fairs, it's all telling us we're seeing literally a repopulating of an earth that one way or another has been wiped. Yeah, right. And that's part of what we're digging through. That means that all the history we have prior to this period of the world's fairs is not only questionable, it's highly likely completely wrong. We have, I, I now, I can honestly say, not that I, you know, we got film of the Kennedy assassination and we're still not totally sure what the hell happened there. We're yeah. supposed to say we know what happened with Napoleon or the French war or what happened in ancient Rome or Greece. We don't have a clue. Yeah. And now this has helped show me how much we are so in the dark about history, which is so important. Why is history important? Well, history is important because it explains our present. We can explain, here's here's where we are, and the story of history is how we got here. Doesn't it make sense? Oh, it makes sense why we use money, why we have a government, why we do this, why the worlds don't like each other, why this country doesn't like this country. But if we find that history is absolutely wrong, that it's just a story that's been used to explain a particular method of control, now all of a sudden we would have to say, well, 
why are we doing anything the way we're doing it then? Because if the history that brought us here is wrong, that supposedly brought us here is wrong, then we don't have to stay here. We can change it. So the historical narrative is important for the overall control mechanism because it explains why we are where we are. Yeah. And essentially the thesis here is that they implanted this narrative in this time, in this way, in these buildings, in these exhibitions, in these simulations, and that became our reality. And we're actually still dealing with the consequences of that even more so in the last three years. And I can tell you it's the exact same thing and the exact same time in medicine and biology. They took a- I was just gonna say, if you looked at anything in the world between about 1850 and 1900, that's when it gets seemingly magically gets formed. Yeah. 1859, Rudolf Virchow says all living things are made of cells because allegedly he saw a picture of a of an onion cell under a microscope. And so then we're, we become chemical beings uh, and all everything after that was how do you explain life based on the interaction, the random interaction of chemicals. Right. All the same. Yeah. Time. So, so that's why to me, this became much more than just a study of some buildings and how they yeah. could have got built. And Hey, was an ancient civilization here. I mean, that's, that's interesting enough. But then once I begin to see, wait a minute, we're actually watching the formation of our world, the world, yeah. we've, like right. the world I've known my whole life. This is where it was formulated. And I don't know for sure there was a world before that. Like, I, you know, as I began to move into the possibilities of simulation theory and computer models and whatever, yeah. how do I know this wasn't the time that the computer model was, the, the, the simulation was started up, boom, the power was turned on. And this is literally day one of the simulation. And everything before that is just Westworld backstory. And we've been, we've only maybe had a hundred or 50, whatever years, uh, you know, that, that's the other question. These things begin to move you into so many possible yeah. areas of question. And that's why to me, the fairs and like you showed in the last one, things like the city of San Francisco and all the questions surrounding the building of San Francisco. And again, any of these, that's something people in the United States have a great advantage of right outside your window, outside your door, not, too many hours away, you have a state capitol building, particularly if you live in the Midwest or the West, you know, in Iowa, in Oklahoma, in Dakotas, Kansas, go yes. see your capitol building. Yeah. Look at the size of that thing. Look at the construction yeah. of it. Supposedly by a bunch of cowboys in 1840, they managed to get all this material and great with when you get the fo early photos of it, there's no roads, there's no nothing. So how did, you know, wouldn't you build a road first just to make it easier to move the stone and the marble before you start building? So right. we have, you have so many questions that just don't make sense. And that's one of the problems. You just, you can just keep going anywhere and nothing makes sense. And, and you know, sense. you look at some of these buildings and you see things that I think are called cherubim carved on, on the, on top. And I can tell you, I didn't learn what a cherubim was until extensive study in my say 40s and i'm not sure how uh you know settlers in <laughs> coming from ireland would decide to build to carve cherubim on the top of their new state capital yeah. so i so I, yeah, yeah. It, it's all it's it, it, it's it's fascinating it was fascinating to me and it, it overturned my my whole view of history my whole view of 
our where we are now, what's going on, what we're going through. Because yeah. then I began to see it's a mirror. So what I've been learning there, it's like it's playing out in the somehow in the same way where we're going, where we're headed is somewhere similar. You know, it was almost like what's going to be the world fair marker in five years, yeah. 10 years that are right. going to that are moving into the new reality, so to speak, which will obviously be something, something virtual reality. So that's why to me it even had a, another level of intensity. And for sure, it, it led. I couldn't have I couldn't have got into writing Exit the Cave and looking into the after death state and looking into what reincarnation and karma and all these other things might be for me without having done the time of going into the world's fairs because it it just destroyed so many obvious lies that I'd been holding on to without knowing it that made me start going okay how many more lies are, what, what's the biggest lie we got yeah. that's where I started going what's the biggest lie we got now let's let's go there let's just yes. let's blow that apart and see what happens so Got it. All right. I think I'm going to gonna, uh, stop us there. Yeah. And I, I just want to, uh, a, a message to anybody who listened to this. First of all, just take a deep breath. <laughs> take a deep breath. Don't take uh, my word. Certainly probably Howdy would say the same thing. Go and look it's just for yourself. Thesis. It's just information. It's all about going and examining things for yourself and making your own conclusions. I'm just presenting a totally different way of seeing this that makes right. sense to me and a lot of other people, but might not to you, but don't, don't not look at it because it might be difficult and painful to. Yes. And so, as I said, uh, 2023, we, meaning me and my team are going to start looking at stuff and say, just a question. Uh, and what's so important is this question is not so much that we know what is true but what isn't true and what did they do and how do we make sense of that? And I had a good friend, I don't know if you would agree with this, but she, uh, she ended up coming to the conclusion that the truth is never scary. Uh, it may be difficult, but ultimately it has an almost liberating, almost funny kind of, you know, it's, uh, and a settling effect. So it may be hard to wrap your brain around or whatever you words you want to use for that. Well, I, it, it will it will set you free. Yeah, there's no question about the truth will set you free. But it certainly might not be what you hope it is. Yeah, it might be might be difficult, but ultimately, it will give you this sense of freedom and maybe closer to your real home yeah. all right howdy we're going to do this again uh let's let this one sit and hear what people yeah. have to say and we will be back and i so appreciate all that you're doing and you taking the time to meet with me on this thanks very much and yeah for people if you pop by for example amazon that's a good place to at least see the books and see if you're yeah. interested i mean and, obviously yeah. that's a great Check way out to how these books help an author it's always great picking up a, a book or two is a great way to say thanks to the research and uh, of course you don't have to buy them in amazon you can buy them anywhere you want uh, that's a place to see them and yet my youtube channel howdy mccoskey talks to various subjects that are going through you're welcome to stop by and and i really appreciate tom taking asking me to come on and having this discussion because like i say i've I, I've really enjoyed, you know, you've been very helpful in, in making me look into areas of that I normally wouldn't have looked yeah. into a lot of the science and biology and questioning other areas that I easily took for granted, like a lot of other people. So yeah. um, my being here is also my way of saying thanks to thanks to you. 
Okay. Howdy. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.